be opening your Bibles up to Mark chapter 7. Be looking there again, and as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question, a question that I hope you will ponder throughout the remainder of this lesson this morning. That question is, what has Jesus done for you? What has Jesus done for you? Anything. Something. Think about that. What has Jesus done for you? Is it something that was more than what you expected? Is it something that was less than what you expected? Because I think sometimes we get in this mentality that what we come to expect from our Lord is not what we receive. And how do we act? in a time like that? How do we respond in a time like that? Mark chapter 7, verse 31, we're going to read through the end of the chapter, gives us a time about how one man became very close with the Savior and what Christ did for him. Read with me, verses 31 through 37. It says, Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his finger in his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed, or he sighed and said to him, Ephathah, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened and the impediment of his tongue was loosed and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. I want to think about this narrative that we've just read here for a moment. Because it's quite an odd story. We think about the things that Jesus did, the way that he acted in this account, it doesn't perfectly line up with everything that we see with him. It's, it's a little different. It's impossible not to see that. Especially in comparison to what we just read last week in verses 24 through 30 of him healing this woman, uh, healing this woman's daughter who seemingly was not there with them. So, so the narrative here is quite a bit different from what we've come to expect of Jesus, but there's some great lessons for us to learn as we read about this account of this man who became so close with Jesus. First, I want to begin by considering the journey back to Galilee. If you remember last week, we talked about how Jesus had traveled all the way up to Tyre and Sidon. And I'm not putting the maps back up, but if you remember that map that had Tyre way at the north, way above Mount Carmel, way above the Sea of Galilee, 40 miles past it so, uh, or, or thereabouts, uh, Jesus has, has been in that region. He's healed the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. He is now making his way back into the land that he had left, heading back towards the Sea of Galilee. And he's coming here uh, into this area of the Decapolis. The Decapolis was called of that because of the ten cities that were prominent in this area. Deca, De uh, Decapolis, it's this idea of ten cities. Um, and so this ten cities that are in this region are very prominent, and that's the reason it's called this, but they're also very Gentile, very Hellenistic. This is Greek 
area. This is not a, a, an area where you would find lots and lots of Jewish influence. You'd find lots of Hellenistic influence in this area. This is also the area where Jesus has been before. In Matthew chapter 5, and verse 20, when Jesus is in this area, he meets a man who is possessed by many demons. We are legion. And this is the area where he casts the demons out of the man into the swine. They run down, and that story spreads, and it fills the region of the people with fear. But you remember the man who wants to come with Jesus, and Jesus tells him to stay. This is the area that he's heading back into in our account. And actually in Matthew, Matthew chapter 15, he describes Jesus doing quite a bit more than what Mark describes. Matthew 15, verses 29 through 31 in Matthew's account, he says, Jesus departed from there, skirted the Sea of Galilee, and went up on the mountain and sat down there. Then great multitudes came, uh, came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others. And they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So the multitude marveled when they saw the mute speaking, the maimed were made, were made whole, the lame walked, and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. So Matthew adds that Jesus is busy healing many people, but he makes that last note. They glorified the God of Israel. Now I want you to remember, Matthew is a Jew. Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, he is a Jew. And he's writing to the Jews about Jesus, who is also a Jew. So that's a good way to remember Matthew. Matthew is a book written by a Jew to the Jews about a Jew. And so he speaks in very Jewish ways, and yet he differentiates here they glorified the God of Israel. Now, to the Jews, they didn't need that differentiate. They didn't need you to differ. When you say the God, when you glorify God, in their mind, they think Yahweh. But he differentiates it. It's probably because he's speaking about Gentiles here. The multitudes that were bringing people to Jesus were likely Gentiles. They were likely people that did not have the background that the Jews had of God and who he was, but they had seen and heard what Jesus has done in this very region, casting out the, the, the legion of demons from the man. That has made an impact on them, so much so that now they're bringing people. You know, for a while they were afraid, now they're bringing people to him, and he is healing them. And that sets up the story for Mark chapter 7, verse 31. One of the people they bring to him was this deaf mute, a man who could not hear, a man that had his speech impeded. Something was going on to make it where he was not able to communicate with the people around them. They bring him this man, and Jesus does these following things. He takes the man aside, number one. The multitude, the crowd, brings this man to him, and he takes this man, and he walks away from the crowd. He walks away, and then he does these things that we don't really see a lot of this described anywhere else. He sticks his fingers in the man's ears. He spits and touches the man's tongue. Remember, he looks up to heaven and sighs. He says the words, Ephathah, and then, uh, which is Aramaic for be open, and then the man is healed. And he is healed instantaneously. His ears are opened, his, his mouth is opened, he begins to speak plainly, and they begin to glorify God. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, now look, don't tell anybody about this. Which is kind of in keeping with Jesus' actions up to this point. The whole first half of Mark, all the way up to chapter 8, 
Jesus conceals his identity. Whenever people realize who he is, he says, don't tell people about this. We're going to see that change in the coming chapter, but, but over and over again he tells them that. But they were so astonished, they begin to wildly proclaim it, and they make that claim, he has done all things well. Now that's the claim that I want to think about the rest of the, the sermon. He has done all things well. And that's what I want us to be thinking about when we go back to that question that I asked you at the beginning. What has Jesus done for you? But before we jump into that, I think we need to look just maybe a little bit longer at the way Jesus healed this man. This is markedly different than the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. The Syrophoenician woman's daughter doesn't even seem to be in the premise. She goes to Jesus at the house. She's constantly asking him and asking his disciples, will you please do something about my daughter? She throws herself at his feet, seemingly impeding his progress. You're not going to go anywhere until you hear my problem. Jesus marvels at her faith and heals the daughter. Who was the faithful in this account in verses 31 through 37? Because Jesus' actions are so remarkably different than what we see prior to this woman. And the, the actions of the person who is healed, who has Jesus' work in their life, is markedly different. For all we know, this deaf-mute has no idea who Jesus is. He can't hear. He, he doesn't speak well. He may have never heard of what Jesus has done. He may have never seen anything that Jesus has done. The crowd has. The crowd has faith. But what faith does the man have? Commentators have many different varying ideas, ranging from the ridiculous to some truly profound thoughts about why Jesus does the things that he does. But I wonder if Jesus doesn't do what he does simply to build faith in this guy. Jesus may have been using sign language when he got this close to them. Now, I don't mean sign language the way we think of it today. I don't mean sign language the way that you might see someone signing to the deaf today. But Jesus gets very close to this man. He pulls him away from the crowd, away from the people who obviously believe that he can do something to get this man by himself. And he touches his ears. Maybe as if to say, I understand you can't hear. And he spits and touches his tongue. Maybe as if to say, look, I understand you can't speak. When you try to talk, nothing comes out that is useful. It's spit. But then he looks to heaven. Possibly to show this guy, look, I recognize the problem that's going on. What, about, what is about to happen, though, doesn't come from me. It comes from God. It is God's doing. And then he sighs. And that, that, that one small part of that verse, he looks to heaven and he sighs right before he speaks. That brings me back to the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, a passage that we use oftentimes to, to, uh, to speak about in remembrance of the Lord's Supper. In Isaiah 53, we get this picture of the Savior. And in verse 4, it says, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Stop right there just for a minute. He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Jesus recognized the trouble this guy had in his life. Jesus looked at this man who can't talk, who can't hear, and he knows about what this guy's going through. He recognizes, he experiences it. He knows. 
He bears that grief. He bears that sorrow. And it certainly goes to a higher level than that. Likely being a Gentile man, he recognizes this man as a sheep without a shepherd. Just like he saw Israel was a sheep without a shepherd. And yes, this sheep, maybe we would call it a goat. Maybe we would say it belonged to a different flock. Jesus recognizes that this guy needs me because I'm the Savior of the world. I'm going to make it possible for him to have atonement for his sin. He recognizes that on on a very deep level, but I would say even on a physical level. You know, this guy's probably had a hard life. This guy's probably dealt with some really bad things because of the fact that he can't hear and he can't talk. He's handicapped in some way. He bears that. And yet, when you finish that verse, it says, while he did those things, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It would be as if this guy, when Jesus comes and he says, hey, I know you can't hear. I know you can't speak. I, I see that. And he, oh, you, you poor guy. And the guy's thinking, me? You're the poor guy. You're the one that's afflicted. You're the one that's, that's handicapped and worthless. Speaking like you're the son of God. Speaking like you can do these things. That would be the mentality of Isaiah, 50, uh, Isaiah 53, verse 4, played out in this guy's mind. That guy looking down on Jesus like he is the one that's afflicted. And that's the way that we act. That's the way that we acted when Jesus came into the world. He came and he said, I see the sorrow. I see the grief that you bear because of your sin. And the world collectively said, it's not us that's to be pitied. It's you. Think you're the son of God. Blaspheme his name. Crucify him. Crucify him. And yet, In this account in Mark chapter 7, we were reminded that Jesus, he has compassion. He's he's affected. It's not just that he pulls the guy aside and says, look, you've had a tough life. It actually moves him. You can feel it in in, in the language that he's, as as we read that there, as he looks up to heaven and he sighs. Yes, I understand that this man's life was, spiritually he was unsaved. But no doubt about it, I believe that Jesus sees even beyond that to the physical aspects of his life as well. And so Jesus opens his mouth. He says those words, Ephatha. And instantaneously the man was healed. I want us to note one more thing before we move on. None of the things Jesus did healed the man. Putting his fingers in his ears, spitting, tongue, touching his tongue. None of these things healed the man. The Bible tells us he spoke plainly after Jesus spoke those words. Jesus said, be opened. The man was opened. The word of God healed this man. The word of God opened the ears of the deaf. The the word of God opened the mouths of the mute. Just like the word of God created and brought life into this world. The Word of God has impact on individuals as well. And so you keep thinking about that question we started off with. What has God done for you? And let's think about the declaration that these people said. He has done all things well. 
Mark chapter 7, verse 37 tells us they were astonished at the miracles of Jesus. The things that Jesus did, it blew them away. How could it not? How could it not to see a man who, who, was, who was filled with, with demons, who was cutting himself, who had to be chained up in the tombs, and yet he broke these metal chains. He had no relief. People loved him. They tried to help him. He kept hurting himself. Jesus is able to, to take care of that. Jesus comes here and takes care of a man who, who has been mute and has been, and has been deaf. He feeds this great multitude of people who are following him uh, in, in this deserted place. Over and over again, he does these things that says, of course we would marvel at that. They were luxurious to be able to see those things and marvel at that. But I want you to turn back to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 tells us that they marveled at Jesus before he did his miracles. In verse 22, it says they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. In chapter 6, in verse 2, it says, And when the Sabbath had came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Before people are astonished at the work of Jesus, they astonish at the wisdom, at the teaching, at the words of Jesus. Once again, reminding us that it's in God's word, which we have today, which we are not somehow lost. We are actually, in many ways, better than them in our, in our ability to have the word of God. Because we have the full revelation of him revealed to us recorded for us, written down and passed down for us, generation to generation, reminding us that the Word of God brings marvel into this world, into our lives. And it brings great works into our lives as well. All of these things that happened, mind you, they happened before this greatest work that we see in His life, His death on the cross, His resurrection, His ascension back into heaven to be the high priest that stands for us, that is marvelous. They marveled even at just his teaching and the, the, the miracles that he performed in his life. And so again, has Jesus done all things well for you? I want you to think about a few things that Jesus has done and ask yourself, did Jesus do well for me? In Matthew chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11 and in verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That, that section of Scripture, Jesus' invitation, it's not to those who, who labor righteously. It says, that, don't come to me those who are of the select few, who are born into the right family, who have the right skin color, who have the right socioeconomic status, Come to me, those people. No, he says, come to me, all who labor. And when he says labor, he's not talking about the work that we do in, in this physical life, the curse of Adam to, to toil in the ground. He's talking about the curse of Adam to do something with the weight of sin that's on our back. He's telling them in this passage, those of you who are burdened down with the sin that you can't do anything about, those of you who are sacrificing bulls and goats every single year to try and do something with the sin that you really can't do anything about, come to me and I'm going to give you rest. 
I'm going to take that burden away. And in reading on, he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. That picture of the yoke, the picture of that, that, that instrument that bonds two oxen together so that they can work profitably in pulling a plow and pulling a cart and doing some sort of, of activity. Jesus says, let me take your burden that you can't bear, the burden that is too much for you, and let me give you a yoke instead. You're trying to pull all this weight. How about I yoke your, you to me? And my yoke is easy. He says, the burden that I give you is a burden that you can bear, a burden that is light. And so again, he says, come, learn from me. He carries with it this idea of being in some sort of master-slave relationship. And what he's saying is you were in a slave relationship. And your slave owner, he despised you. And he was working you to the bone. And he, at the end of the day, you're not going to be rewarded for your work. You're going to be killed for your work. Because you were working for the devil. You were working for Satan. But he says, not me. I'm gentle. I'm humble. I'm lowly in heart. If you come to me, you will find rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30 reminds us Jesus has provided rest for us. He has provided rest for the weary soul. But has he done that for you? Has he done that well? Turn on over to Mark chapter 16. Another passage we're probably very familiar with, Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. <clears throat> Jesus there said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Jesus told us that I bring you rest. You have a burden on your back, and you can't bear it, you can't carry that burden but I will take it away from you and I will give you rest. But on the judgment day, I'm going to give it back to you and you have to somehow account for that. We would have rest, but we would not have salvation. What Jesus tells us in Mark 16 is not only am I giving you rest, I'm giving you freedom from that burden. You don't have to ever take it back. It can be taken away forever, for eternity. And I will give that to you. If. He describes here in verse 16, you believe that I can. For so many of the world today, they look at themselves. They say, Jesus was an amazing guy. He was a great teacher. Maybe he even was the son of God. But I am a wicked, wicked person. I've done some terrible things. There's no way I can be forgiven for the things that I've done. There are people who look at Jesus and say, I don't need your forgiveness. I don't believe that you, that you need to save me. I believe that I'm already saved. I believe that I'm fine. Jesus says, if you don't believe that not only you need for me to save you, you need my rest, but that I can far more abundantly than you could ever imagine, remove the sin in your life, make it as if it was completely gone, then there's no point in being baptized. There's no point in taking one more step because you're already condemned. You've already turned your back on the one thing that'll save you. It hasn't gone anywhere. It's still there. But if you don't believe, you're not going to take the steps to try and, and attain it. But he says that for those who do, for those who believe that I can, obey me. Be baptized. Wash yourself 
in the waters of baptism. Be made like my death. And I will give you eternal life. And Jesus has given us rest. Jesus has given us salvation. John chapter 14 tells us one more thing that Jesus gives us. And that is peace. Verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It doesn't take long to look into this world and find that there's a lot of people who aren't resting, a lot of people who aren't saved, but especially a lot of people who don't have peace. People who, who look at the the, the, the burdens of their world, the troubles, the trials that they face on a regular basis, and, and it eats them up. It destroys them. John talked in class about, about depression. He talked about hatred and anger and all of these things, these things that affect the heart. They're a lack of peace. Jesus was literally telling them, I'm not going to bring you the peace that, that the world wants. I'm going to bring you the peace that tells you you have rest. You are saved. There's going to be a day when you stand before the God of heaven and the God of heaven is going to look at you and ask you to give an account and when you give that account, He's going to see not your sins, but He's going to see His Son. He's going to see the blood of the Lamb covering you and He's going to pass over just like He passed over in Egypt. And for so many people, they don't have that peace because for whatever reason, they haven't held on to that thought. Maybe it's because they don't believe. Maybe it's because their faith says, you know, I just don't know. I don't know how many times I've heard someone say as they get close to the end of their life, what are you thinking? I'm thinking, have I done enough? I'm worried, have I done enough? The answer to that question resoundingly is no. You can't do enough. Your Savior did enough. And he says, that's what I died to give you. That's why I came to give you, to give you rest, salvation, and peace so that you can know that when someone comes in and they say, you know what, Christianity is going to be banned. If you're a Christian, you're, you're going to face a terrible death. You're not going to be able to have food. You're not going to be able to have home. Christians in that first century experience, that they could say, that's okay, because you can't do a thing to take me away from my God. Because He has sent His Son, and He has done enough to save me. Jesus truly has done all things well. But again, I ask the question, what has he done for you? What has he done for you? It might be that you look upon these things and you say, you know what? I don't feel like he's done that for me. And it's possible that you feel that way because of a lack of faith. We talked about that just a second ago. In Mark chapter 6, we see the danger that a lack of faith has. When Jesus went to Nazareth, they said, we know who you are. You're not the son of God. You're the son of Joseph. You're the carpenter's son. We remember you. We know who you are. And in verse 5 it says, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about in the villages in a circuit teaching. You notice that he had the ability. He was able to heal people. He could have raised people from the dead. Their unbelief doesn't limit his power. It limits the ability of his power to do anything profitable in their lives. Because they didn't believe, even though he was healing a few sick people, they didn't see what these multitudes saw. 
They didn't see what these multitudes saw that were not even Jewish, were Gentile. He said, we've got to get all of our sick people to this guy. This guy is real. This guy is legit. He can do what he said he can do. They didn't see that. And so Jesus didn't bless them with the great works that he did in other places. For many people, our lack of faith, it impedes the great and well things that God has done in our lives. For some, it's because we have restricted our hearts. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And read here in the Corinthians, when Paul writes to them, listen to what he says in verse 11. He says, we have spoke openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. It's the same thing to the, to the Corinthians who are restricted not by anything other than what they loved. And obviously what they loved was not what they needed to love. They're very reminiscent to, to the parable of, of the, the soils. Of that soil which, while it sprang up, it still had a love for the world, a love for the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches. Sometimes we can't experience or see the good things that God has done in our life. Rest, salvation, peace. Because we're so busy being blinded by the world that we live in. Sometimes we're being blinded by the negative things that happen in this world. Blinded by heartache and pain and sickness and sorrow. Other times we're being blinded by the things that we want and greed and, and even pride. Paul told the Corinthians, be open. Jesus told this man, be open. The Word of God has the ability to do that for us. One more thing that might cause us to not experience the things that Jesus has done well, and that's unthankfulness. Unthankfulness blinds us from being able to see the amazing works that Christ has done. I want to read you this quote that I read about, um, about Andrew Carnegie. You know that, probably know that name. Millionaire, philanthropist, uh, steel industry leader in that. When he died, he amassed quite a large fortune. He left $1 million to one of his, uh, one of his relatives. He left a $1 million. Now, I don't know what I would do if I found out that some long-lost rich relative of mine died and left me a million dollars. I can tell you probably it would begin with a dance. But other than that, I have not thought much further past that, what I would possibly do with a million dollars. This guy cursed Andrew Carnegie for leaving him a million dollars. Cursed him. How can you possibly write me off by just giving me a measly million dollars. The reason being was because he gave corporations, I shouldn't say corporations, he, he gave the public charities $365 million. Give $365 million to public charities. This man said, how can you possibly only give me a million dollars? And we, we scoff at that. What is wrong with that guy? But look around us. We are blessed. And God has given so many good and abundant things to this world and, and to people that need it. And sometimes we look at our life and we say, but I only got 
only got this much. This person, they got so much more. And that person, they got more time with their family. And that person, they got, they got the, the, the relationships that they've always wanted. And they've got the money that they, they, they want. And I only got this. Do we tend to focus on what we lack? Do we tend to focus on the things that we feel we're missing in our lives like this guy did? Doing so causes us to miss out on the blessings that God has placed in our lives that if we would look at, say, wow, Jesus does all things well. God does all things well. Yes, somebody else may have more. That's a praise of God. Because God gave that. And God, through him, he does all things well. We need to look around at ourselves. We need to look at our circumstances. We need to ask ourselves, if God does all things well, and I'm not experiencing that, why? I want to tell you, it's because of us. It's because our hearts are in the wrong place. Our minds are in the wrong place. Our desires are in the wrong place. Our faith is in the wrong place. I want to leave you with five quotes from God. Five quotes where God spoke to people who are having a hard time believing him. The first one comes from Genesis chapter 18 and verse 14. When God had told Sarah and Abraham, I'm going to give you a child. And they're near 100 years old. And Sarah thinks, <laughs> yeah, right. Laughs about it. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? I don't know what that deaf mute guy was thinking. But if somebody had woke him up that morning and somehow conveyed to him, you're going to get your hearing and your speech today. That's probably a hard thing to believe. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's not. That was a piece of cake. Giving a couple near 100 years old a child as fulfillment of a promise. It's a piece of cake. Is anything too hard for the Lord? In Numbers chapter 11, verse 23, God speaking to Moses, talking about whether or not he will do what he says or not. He says, has the Lord's arm been shortened? What he's saying is, have I been handicapped somehow? Did somebody tie my arm behind my back? You just sit back and see if I won't do what I've said I will do. That's what he was telling them in that case. Has the Lord's arm been shortened? Or Isaiah 50 verse 2, is my hand shortened at all that it cannot redeem? If you think there's no way that God could ever heal me, forgive me of the things that I've done, Look no further than Acts chapter 2 at the people who murdered his son. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, murderers, crucifiers of the Christ, and you, murderers, crucifiers of the Christ, will receive forgiveness from your sins. God's hand has not been shortened to redeem us from the sins that we have. In fact, his very next words in Isaiah 50, 50 verse 2 is, Have I no power to deliver? Have I no power to bring you out of that? And so maybe the question we need to remind ourselves, or the quote that we need to remind ourselves, is that the Spirit of the Lord is not restricted. Micah 2, verse 7. There is nothing outside of the realms of which God has the ability to do to save you, to bring you into that relationship with Him, to love you, the way that he has loved the rest of the world. I want us to remember that the God that we serve, or the God that we should be serving, is the same God who with just a few words spoke creation into existence, let there be light, and there was light. 
spoke a dead man back to life. Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. And Fafatha, be opened, told a, blind, a, a deaf, mute man, you need, to, you need to hear and you need to speak. And he spoke plainly. We need to think about these things. Whenever our spiritual life begins to falter, begins to be feeble, Jesus has done all things well. Augustine, a, a really, really old dead guy, Augustine said Christ is not valued at all unless he is valued above all. Do we value Christ above all? Clement of Alexandria, another old guy, he said change, God changed sunset into sunrise, but it's Paul who said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, they're a new creature. He does all things well. If he has brought us into him, he does that well too. How are we going to respond to that? The way that we think about Christ is vitally important to who we are and how we behave in Christ. So what has Christ done for you? If your spiritual life is, is insipid, if, it's, if it is not growing the way it should be growing, if it has begun to stagnate, think about what he said to the, to the Laodiceans in Revelation. Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, he tells them, you're a new creation, but you're acting like the world that you came out of. He said, if you were hot or cold, I would be pleased, but you're lukewarm, and I'm going to spew you out. The instruction to them was to not think more highly of yourself than what you do, but rather come to me and receive what I have to offer. Come by, by salve from me for your eyes so that you may truly see. We need to remember that following Jesus fervently means coming close to Him. Coming close to Jesus means hearing His Word. Even a deaf mute could do that. Could hear the words of Christ. One last quote. I don't know who wrote this one. They said, what is good in having someone who can walk on water if you're not willing to follow in His footsteps? Jesus has done all things well for you. Jesus stands ready to open your eyes that you might see his great works. He stands ready to open your mouth so that you may, may proclaim his glory. So now the question this, after, or this morning is what's keeping you from that? What's hindering you in coming closer to the Savior? We want to help you with that this, this morning. If there is something that we can do to help you begin your walk with the Lord, coming to Him in obedience, coming to Him recognizing that He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb that died for the forgiveness of my sins. And not only did He do that, He can remove my sins. He can make me pure and He can make me whole. And having believed that, are you willing to confess that? In your words, in your deeds, in your life to others that He is going to be my master. I'm going to turn away from the life that I used to walk and I'm going to follow His commands from now on starting with being baptized so that I might receive forgiveness of my sins. If we can help you with that this morning, won't you please let it be known. Come forward as we stand and as we sing.